Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman. No subtitle. Yeah. Part two. Part two. We started our redo of Thinking Fast and Slow last week, but it's such a mega book that it deserved two episodes. We we had to break it up. The first one was long enough as it was, uh, but it's power packet of absolute gold. Absolutely. So, last week we went in deep into detail of the two systems, system one, system two. We covered all the heuristics and biases, especially from system one, things like laws of small numbers, anchors, availability, base rate neglect, less is more, and regression to the mean. So, if you are listening to this episode first, we'll give you a quick overview of system one and two. You can definitely listen to it. I'd probably say listen to part one first. But in this episode, we're going to talk about overconfidence, choices, and the two selves. So, the two characters of the story throughout Thinking Fast and Slow is, first of all, system one. And this is the part of the brain that operates automatically and quickly with little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control. So it has all this associative machinery that happens deep below the surface to, that weaves neurons together that has these automatic reactions. So if we were to ask you to answer 2 plus 2, for example, straight away you have, you have the answer without even thinking. So from the title, Thinking Fast and Slow, remember that system one is at fast thinking. As you say, it's automatic, it's effortless, it jumps to conclusions, uh, and it doesn't like to work too hard. So if it's asked a question, it often substitutes in an easier question, and it's also a victim to the trap that is littered throughout this book of what you see is all there is. So what system one does, it sees a small amount of information, jumps to a conclusion, and then ignores all of the other potential information that was out there. Now, system two... The slow thinking, it allocates attention to the effortful mental activities that demand it. So, so whenever you're really thinking and concentrating about something, you're drawing on the resources of your system too. And it's, as you say, it's effortful. It takes a lot of energy and focus and mental capacity. System two, in that sense, is lazy. Like it, You'd rather not use system two because it takes so much effort. So we use system one as much as we can until we come across some kind of tricky question that uh, you know it's like a, a bit of a circuit breaker. It forces us to stop and think, and that's when system two is triggered when it absolutely has to be. Part three of the book and the first section we're going to be covering in this episode is how humans can end up being overconfident in a lot of ways due to the areas that we have, especially in our system one judgment. He calls this the illusion of understanding. So, because we are, you know, like as you say, system one, we're jumping to conclusions, we're making assumptions, we feel like we know the answer. And because we've used this thing of what you see is all there is, we're neglecting all the other information. So, all we see is the information that we use to make the decision and it looks like we made the right decision. So, we become extremely confident that we made the correct decision. Yeah, because we're ignoring all the potential outside data, uh, whatever data we've got in our brain, we're trusting to the max. We end up thinking our own conclusions, what we've come up with, uh, a gospel, not understanding that you know we're only taking a small portion of, of all the data into consideration. The halo effect. So there are a lot of things that flow into this. A lot of these, you know, heuristics and biases that we're using are these shortcuts or these these cognitive biases. And one big one is a halo effect. And what the halo effect is is taking a, a small piece of information about somebody and extrapolating that to make a whole bunch of assumptions. And so he talks about it in the book like a a baseball pitcher. You see this guy walk out onto the field. 
uh, long flowing blonde locks. He's a big rig. He's you know broad shoulders. He's a pretty tall dude. He looks pretty fit and pretty chiselled. Sounds and he, a bit like me, doesn't it, <laughs> mate? That's what that's how I was using to explain it. <laughs> and yeah, and you think, oh, this guy is a bloody good baseball pitcher. I can, you can just tell just by looking at him that he's going to be awesome. And you've taken this one piece of information, his physical appearance, and you've ex- extrapolated that to make assumptions about his uh, sporting ability, which is completely unrelated. But it's a it's a great example of the halo effect. Taking the you know it's a, like a, imagine someone who's wearing a halo. You see them with a halo, so you assume that they're really good at everything. So we've got this ability to make a good story based on a limited amount of information to extrapolate in other areas that we're not aware of. So that's a, a story that a lot of us have when it comes to baseball pitches. It comes up in pretty much every area of, of life. For example, if you like a prime minister or president's politics, you're probably going to like his voice and appearance as well. So the tendency to like or dislike everything about a person, including the things that you haven't observed, is, is the halo effect. And it, it works both ways, as you say. It's either a very positive thing where you take one small piece of positive information and then judge that person overall positively. It also works the other way. If there's one small thing, maybe the first time you meet someone, if they give you a sloppy handshake, you use that handshake that was very weak and you take that and apply a whole bunch of negative assumptions about that person. So, you've got to be very careful with this halo effect because it can either work very well in your, in your favor or very poorly against you. Now, if you're doing... An interview, for example, if you interview extremely well, you're going to benefit from the halo effect because this person is going to judge your ability to do work that's got nothing to do with interviews based on how well you interview. Yeah, if you just see a a confident, outgoing person who's comfortable and and can talk and is a good public speaker, then you just assume, yeah, this this woman's going to be really good for our organization. She's going to be a real hard worker. She's going to really be able to knuckle down and drive change and bring new things to this organization. All these extrapolations and assumptions, just based on that small, you know, 15, 20-minute interview where they took a few pieces about this woman's uh, behavior, about her confidence, about her clarity in speaking, and... uh, yeah, and she got the job. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think uh, presentations there in public speaking is probably the biggest and most amplified version of the halo effect because if someone can stand up there and do a presentation to a whole group of people and act competently, it doesn't matter really how good she is at her job. If she can do that, most people are just going to assume this person is extremely competent and effective in everything they do. Yeah, I think public speaking is one of those highly leveraged things because it definitely works the other way. If you see someone up there who's uh, not confident, poor poor posture, they're stuttering and stammering, uh, they're struggling, either you know, they're reading off the slides or they can't get it out consistently or coherently, then you just assume they're a bit of a dud. I think public speaking in general is a safe bet for everyone to really try and learn at some stage in their lives to benefit from the halo effect. Narrative fallacy. If you think about all the data and information that's flowing around the world, it's really way too much for any single person to handle the entire complexity. So the narrative fallacy, it's something that we have to do. We have to narrate all this information and data about what's happening around the world, usually to a nice coherent story. And sometimes this story and the map that you've created is quite different to the reality. Yeah, if you see, if you're working with data, for example, and you see all these stats that are trending up, and uh, if you say, "Oh, I've got no idea why the the stats are going up," but 
look, it's everything's going really well, so we should keep doing what we're doing. Your boss is probably going to say, you're a bit of an idiot. You need to give us something. If you can narrate some kind of story around it, if you can say, oh, oh it went up because we introduced this new uh, project and that we marketed it really well so that everyone's taken it up very strongly. Uh, that story could be absolute horseshit, but just because you've framed or you've created this narrative around it, you've built up this story that sounds logical and that works with the data, people are going to believe it a lot more strongly, even though it could be a crock of shit. Yeah. A lot of the time, it, yeah. Could probably be, is. Yeah. Probably is a crock of shit. <laughs> and it's something that you listen to every week on the What You Learn podcast. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it, uh, it is inevitable that every time we get a three, four, five hundred page book, we have to narrate it down to what we think is the best bits from the best books. And in, in, inherent in that, every single time, the, the book goes filters through our own brain and the own, our own narrative that we've got flowing through the world. And uh, it could potentially sometimes land differently to the original author's intent. Yeah, 100%. And as you say, because we're, we're both sort of two similar dudes, we've got our own uh, narrative that's largely similar. And because we can't possibly cover a whole book in one episode, that we're picking and choosing the best bits. And thanks to our narrative, we're probably picking similar bits and something that we really liked, maybe someone doesn't like so much, maybe something we chopped out could have been someone's favorite part, uh, but that's just uh, all part part and parcel. If you think of a startup like Google, right? So if you think at the very beginning, you had Larry Page and Sergey Brin, you know, who had this who had this original idea, bringing it into the world. And at that very stage, there's probably a lot of people with a similar idea and similar kind of levels. They made one decision, worked out, made another decision, worked out. And then they probably made 20 or 30 decisions that each one of them worked out. And by the laws of probabilities, if you have you know a million people filtering through ideas with 30 different decisions and only just by the law of numbers, there's only... You know, just by statistics alone, there's always going to be a few that survive and a lot of people who fail. So, let's say 99.9% of them failed and the 0.01% were these two. Now, they keep making their decision. They end up with Google and they end up with a multi-billion dollar company in the world. From their point of view, they've got this clearly explained narrative and they could probably write a book on how to do a startup like Google and how to make a billion dollar company and what they've succumb to is the narrative fallacy and people reading that book again succumbing to the narrative fallacy because a complete narrative would include the other 99.9 percent and a portion of that other people who failed they might have made the exact same decisions as google did but just through the uncertainties in the world they ended up failures yeah as you could say you could tell the story of Larry and Sergey who were these two legends they were just complete outliers who were absolute geniuses who took risks and did everything right and were supremely confident that's one narrative that you could tell but that's a it's a complete simplification if you were to tell the complete history you would talk about all the mistakes they'd made along the way you'd as you say you'd bring in the competitors you talk about all the different elements and you know you would talk about how what the competitors did and didn't do but of course like if you flesh this out uh, it's just like it's too much of a, a massive story for anyone to comprehend. It's much easier to think, oh, these two legends who were superstars, they were just the best and they were the only ones that could ever do it. Yeah, another one that comes into mind is say something like the law of attraction. There's some really successful people out there who are attributing their, all their success to or a big part of it to the law of attraction. Oprah's uh, spruced it in the past. Conor McGregor's talking about it a lot. And you know, someone watching those two people might think, oh, right, the law of attraction is the key to absolutely everything. But when you're looking at these two people who have climbed the top of the mountain, 
you're really missing the thousands and tens of thousands of people who were the starting point who have actually failed through this uh, this this make believe law. So now that we've talked about the narrative fallacy and you've got a bit of a grasp of it and you can obviously realize that we're all victims of the narrative fallacy all the time, here are a few things you need to do to sort of uh, be on your toes and keep a lookout for it. What Kahneman says is that the ultimate test of an explanation is whether it would be predictable in advance. So if you you know go back 20, 25 years to Larry and Sergey in college, could you have predicted that these two guys uh, were going to, just because they're absolute legends, were going to make the biggest company in the world? And I'd say it's probably pretty unlikely. So that means that that simple story has fallen apart. It has to be predictive in advance for it to be somewhat true. Otherwise, it's just a, just a crock of shit. And the second way we can overcome the narrative fallacy is to understand and differentiate the importance of luck versus skill. So again, for that example we had of, of Google, there could have been 1,000 things that went their way on, you know, on, on their journey to become the, the company that they are today. And the third big important one is the idea of non-events. So you know, when we're telling our story, when we're weaving together the narrative, we're only focusing on what did happen. We often neglect the things that could have happened that didn't. You know, so at every decision, we've taken one path. There was a whole bunch of different other paths that we could have gone down. And when we're telling that story, when we're weaving the narrative together, we completely neglect those. So you've got to be very cognizant of those non-events that could have occurred but didn't. It comes back again to that what you see is all there is rule. You cannot help but deal with the limited information that's right in front of you and it's hard for us to understand the information that could be on the other side. Hindsight bias. The hindsight bias comes into play where after we've made a decision or taken a course of action, uh, if things pan out one way or the other, we look back, you know, use our hindsight, we look back and we think, oh yeah, I knew that all along. I knew that was going to happen. You know, at the uh, end of the the GFC, there was a lot of people looking back saying, yeah, this was inevitable. This is always going to happen. Everyone should have seen it coming. But those same people probably weren't saying that two or three years earlier, saying that it was inevitable. Yeah, it's the also known as the I knew it all along effect. Kahneman says that many psychologists have really studied what happens when people change their mind. So if you're asked on a topic that's kind of iffy that you aren't fully made your mind up on, like say something like the death penalty, they've had experimenters measure people's attitudes and after they were measured, their attitudes, then they were really persuaded by a very eloquent person in terms of pro and con. After that, they measured the same person's attitudes again after they've been somewhat persuaded. And then finally, after they've been persuaded, they're asked to give the opinion that they used to have before they were persuaded. And what they found was is it's really impossible for us to reconstruct our former beliefs and in the attempts to do so, we just basically retrieve our current beliefs instead. So our inability to reconstruct past beliefs will make us really underestimate the extent that we're actually surprised by new events. One big drawback of the hindsight bias where this really comes into play is when we're evaluating the decisions that we made. So what happens is, you know, we make a decision, we take some course of action, we look back and we judge that decision or action based on the outcome rather than the decision itself. So the book Thinking in Bets talked a lot about this, about resulting and about this hindsight bias. But it's really saying that, okay, so you make a decision, you say, did it work out? Yeah, that was probably a good decision. Or did it not work out? That was probably a bad decision. But in actual fact, the decision and the outcome are two very different things. Maybe you made a decision that had a 90% chance of paying off 
and it didn't pay off in the end. There was a 10% chance it didn't work. But then you say, yeah, that was a poor decision. Absolutely. So good decisions can lead to bad outcomes and bad decisions can actually lead to good outcomes. So let's say your father uh, has a back problem and you know, and you as a family know your father's got a one in a hundred chance of permanent problems in the back and becoming a paraplegic after the surgery. You think one in a hundred, yep, no problem, probably worth it. You go into the surgery and it turns out that one in 100 actually happens. Then after that, if your dad's a paraplegic walking out of that, you're going to start pointing. he's not walking out, is he? No, he's not walking out anymore, (laughs) is he? He's getting wheeled out. He's getting wheeled out. Probably fair enough to get pretty pissed off at the uh, surgeon thinking they're completely incompetent and everything like that because a lot of time we neglect that from the very start, there was a chance that this could happen. And the same sort of idea plays out in, in some of the books that come and sort of had a little bit of a dig of. Books like Built to Last and Good to Great by Jim Collins or like In Search of Excellence uh, by Tom Peters and Robert Waterman that we've done in the past, saying that all of these books, what they did, they tried to look back through history and through the decisions and courses of actions and the marriage managerial practices that, that the big companies that were really successful undertook. And they identified that, you know, generally good practices always yield good results. But Kahneman says that that's pretty overrated and he says that there's a hell of a lot of other factors that you couldn't possibly uh, examine and there's a hell of a lot of luck involved. And so he's saying that just by looking back and thinking, oh, this company's done well, so that means they must have good managers with good managerial practices is hindsight bias 101. So we love a big causal story, you know, of, of like why a business did all these special things to make sure they came on top and what businesses fucked up to to really go bankrupt. And, you know, this simple message of triumph and failure has some clear causes, but we really always ignore the power of luck and luck and uh, the whole the whole game of chance. Yeah, and he, he likes to throw a dig in there at the end and just say, you know, a lot of the companies that were built to last, that were meant to be around forever, kind of shrunk into obscurity. A lot of the companies in, in search of excellence, their profitability dropped after the study and... Uh, yeah, it was just a, a whole lot of causal stories that didn't weren't predictive and weren't able to tell to tell the future. I thought all the bill to us went bankrupt, didn't they? Uh, I don't know about all, but I think uh, a chunk. Yeah. <laughs> Intuitions versus formulas. It's generally agreed that the quality of wine is due to the variations in weather during the great growing season. So the best wines are really when the summer is warm and dry but it's also helped by wet springs. So there's a bit of a uh, bit of information here and someone actually converted these knowledge this knowledge into a statistical formula that will predict the price of wine at any particular age by the weather, the average temperature of the growing season and the amount of rain at harvest time and the total rainfall of the previous winter. And then what they did after this is they compared the accuracy of these predictions to all the wine experts, you know, the ones who've done the degrees on wine, who have dedicated their whole entire life's passion to that. And, you know, most people think those people who are humans using their intuition to make these predictions would beat these formulas. But it turns out the formulas win every day of the week, uh, not just in this scenario, but in most other scenarios as well that we have to deal with. Yeah, these uh, experts who are using their intuitions, they're falling victim to a hell of a lot of these uh, cognitive biases that we've been talking about. 
you know, they're using their flawed system one. They're making uh, assumptions based on emotions and feelings and intuitions. They're using their gut. They probably think that they've got all this experience. So, again, that makes them overconfident. And so, they think that they can know a lot better than a formula. They just think, oh, the formula, you know, there's only a few different variables here. Uh, I'm taking into account so much more information and I'm making it a much more uh, well-reasoned decision. But really, the experts are not experts when you stack them up against a formula. I've got another one here for you, Astro. He says that experienced radiologists who evaluate x-rays as normal or abnormal contradict themselves 20% of the time when looking at the same image later. That's pretty scary, man. Absolutely. So, this person, uh, if, if they say this person's got cancer and then 20% of the times they say that or if they say this person doesn't have cancer, 20% of the times they change their mind looking at the same image. Yeah. And again, so that's like a, a study they did where they, you know, they gave people a whole bunch of different things and they said they went through and said if it was normal or abnormal and then they, without them realizing, they filtered a few of the same ones back in. That's pretty scary, man, to get a, a negative diagnosis when you're actually positive. Mm. Another one that we've covered a lot throughout the podcast in multiple books is when it comes to stock picking. So, a lot of professional investors try and time the market in picking a stock when it's high or low and you know, you'd think through all this effort and energy and all the fees that they're reading up that they're actually going to beat the market. But actually, turns out there's really no stock pickers who have the ability and the skill to beat the market consistently. And it also comes into play that what we talked about last week in the first part, yeah, was that Billy Bean, the Oakland A's in Michael Lewis's Moneyball, where all of the, uh, the, the talent scouts for baseball, they were all picking based on what they thought was important, but they were also impacted by things like the halo effect and a lot of their intuitions and things like that. Whereas once uh, Billy Bean came in and he just had his formulas and he was able to he was able to outperform all those people who were going just based off gut instinct and intuition and their ideas that they were the experts. The planning fallacy. Kahneman tells a personal story here where he gives the example, he was working with the Israeli Ministry for Education and they were developing a new curriculum and a new textbook. And it was all around the ideas of judgment and decision-making. So, a lot of the things that we've been talking about in this book. And there was a group of them, uh, you know, a, a team of people that were going to do this. And together, they thought, this is probably going to take us around two years. And that was just based on their, uh, really, a wild stab in the dark. Someone said, we should probably look at, you know, other similar groups who have taken on similar tasks. How long did they take? And they found that similar groups took, on average, seven to ten years but there was also a 40% chance that it never actually got finished. So, that's pretty wild. But the, the team thought, nah, I'm sure we're a lot better team. Let's just push on. We'll be able to knock it off in two years. They carried it out. They started developing this curriculum. A few unknown unknowns popped in. And by the end of it, it actually took them eight years. Mm. So, again, what we do is we forecast estimates based on basically just what's in front of them. And, again, it's what you see is all there is. So, the main unproblematic... So the main trap that we fall into is we can't account for unknown unknowns. We only know our known knowns and our known unknowns. We can't see the things that aren't on the table and we have the we fall for the overconfidence in thinking that what's in front of us is all there is. He distinguishes between these two things as the inside view and the outside view. So taking the inside view means you're using your own estimations and judgments to make a prediction. That's what you know. That's the inside view. Whereas the outside view will be looking at things like the base rate, which we talked about last time, or looking at things like, okay, what about similar teams like us? How have they performed in the past? 
That's the outside view. So, you're taking sort of real-world data and ignoring your own assumptions. So, obviously, the team, they took the inside view for Danny's uh, curriculum development. They With the inside view, they said two years. The outside view said it's probably more likely seven to ten. And, of course, it took them eight. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the outside view is a lot more reliable than taking our own inside view. So, this is the planning fallacy where we always end up with these overly optimistic projects and they're really everywhere. But... These estimates that we have, they're almost always close to the best case scenarios. And, you know, you could always improve by consulting on similar cases from people uh, from from the outside view. Man, it happens to me uh, every week, I reckon, almost, in terms of doing the notes for this podcast. You go through a book, you read it, and you'll say, what's the army coming over? I'll say, oh, I'm just doing the notes now. Uh, it'll probably take me an hour, so I'll be, I'll be there by 10 o'clock. Uh, generally, I'll probably see him midday. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, it always seems to take uh, longer than you think because uh, when you're planning, you're making a few assumptions uh, and it almost always blows out to a lot longer than you think. Yeah, and it's a function of the unknown unknowns. The more unknown unknowns that are there, the more it's going to be blown out well in proportion. I mean, regulators and designers always cook it when it comes to infrastructure when you have to go down, dig up rock, you don't know what's going to be in the ground and then throw things around and it's over five to 10-year projects. They always, always go, almost certainly always go over budget. For example, in Sydney recently, we've got the Sydney light rail there. You know the one I'm talking about, Ash Show? I do. I yeah. do. Every time we go to Sydney, it feels like nothing's progressed, but I'm sure they're doing good stuff. Yeah, there's a funny video of uh, on YouTube of a few construction <laughs> workers. Have you seen that? Yeah, just passing a brick from one to the other. About 10 people passing a brick <laughs> to the other or whatever. So, this, this project was originally budgeted for $1.6 billion. And then in 2014, it surged to $2.1 billion. But then now they're saying this project is upwards of $3 billion and likely to be a lot more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it's already doubled and that. They're still no closer to finishing. Another funny story is the the Scottish Parliament in 1997. They made the estimate this building in Edinburgh would cost 40 million pounds. Two years later, after they'd started working on the project, they said the budget's 109 million pounds. In 2000, the regulators said, okay, 195 million, that's your cap. You can't go over that. No more. That's it. 2001, they said, okay... You guys are you guys are taking the piss here. What's what's it going to cost? And they said, okay, two hundred forty-one million. That's it. And then two thousand two, they increased the cost twice more. In uh, in two thousand three, there was three more increases in budget. And by the time in two thousand four, they actually got to finishing. It actually cost four hundred thirty-one million dollars uh, million pounds. So from their initial estimate of forty, they've ended up with four hundred thirty. That's almost an eleven x. And that's a, a that's just planning fallacy one hundred one. <laughs> There's another one here. There's a survey of homeowners redoing their kitchen. So I hope my brother's uh, listening to this because he's doing a whole bunch of this at the moment. But most people, when they start out, they're predicting their kitchen upgrade is going to cost them $18,650. But in fact, what they pay is $38,769. So everyone who's going to upgrade their kitchen is up for 20 grand more than their original estimates. Yeah, that's again, that's over double. So if you're, you know, planning on doing renovations to your house and you've set aside a budget, you've tried to do as as much as you possibly can in terms of research and in terms of the inside view of what you think it's going to take. Uh, you've got to be very careful because you're, you're probably going to be under under budgeting yourself. And in actual fact, this planning fallacy is come, going to come back and bite you. 
So remember, whenever you come up to a new project, your bias is always going to estimate for the best case scenario. So if you're putting a proposal in for some kind of project and you're putting dollar amounts on it and it's in an area not much experience, remember that the dollar you're going to put in naturally is going to be on the lower end. You need to make sure you account for all the unknown unknowns and the best way to do this is consult an outside view, someone who's a lot more experienced in this area or look at other different projects and compare the amount of time it takes based on that rather than you just starting from the the initial work breakdown. Loss aversion. I'm going to offer you a a bit of a gamble here, Ashto, and those listening, you can see what you think of this. Let's say if I toss this coin here, if it lands on tails, you lose $100. If it lands on heads, you win $100. Mm. You're going to jump on this bet. Uh, I'm a gambling man. I have dabbled uh, from time to time in the past. Uh, this is a tough though, tough one though, mate. A hundred bucks is a that's a painful loss, you know, just on the on the toss of a coin. I think I'd rather be uh, compensated a bit more than a hundred bucks. Statistically, of course, it makes a hell of a lot of sense because it's you know fifty fifty to lose as much as you win. The expected value there is to break even. Uh, you should be able to take that bet, but the pain of the loss is so much uh, worse than the upside of the win. And this is the exact same answer that Danny Kahneman got when he was doing this research. Most people wouldn't choose his bet because the statistical value is uh, the because the expected value is basically zero. It's neutral. You're not going to win. You're not going to lose. But for most people, the pain of losing $100 is actually more than the benefits of winning $100. And what they found was usually it takes a psychological benefit of $150 equals the loss of $100. Yeah, this was uh, this is a, a big element of prospect theory, which is what Kahneman won his Nobel Prize for, was prospect theory, uh, and specifically this idea of loss aversion, saying that losses often hurt like uh, generally like twice as much as the wins. So that's like what you were saying. If people said, okay, if you're going to lose 100 bucks if you lose this bet, how much do you have to win to make it worth the risk? And that's why that win is significantly higher than the loss because that loss hurts a lot more. This has become very apparent to me <laughs> recently. Uh, you know, I got a bit of a pay bump earlier in the year. It was, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was pretty decent, pretty happy with it. And then more recently, I had my $3,000 uh, laptop stolen. So there was this gentleman who came through on... Uh, <laughs> a gentleman's a generous way to put it. He was a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> he was a gangster from the western suburbs in Victoria and he was a stereotypical looking gangster. And uh, yeah, he got me on Gumtree. He... He put a cash slash check deposit in my bank account, came into my house and grabbed the laptop. The, the $3,000 appeared to be my account and then he left. Three days later, uh, I got this over-withdrawed fee on my bank account with $3,000 oh, cash. I thought it was cash. It was a check. Uh, bounced out. So then he just basically went off with my laptop. The pain of that $3,000 was quite large. It was, it was, it was a big $3,000. And I think it takes a lot more of a pay rise, much greater than the $3,000 to equal the pain of that loss. Man, another big part that added to that loss as well was that your notes of thinking fast and slow were on that laptop as well. <laughs> so it took you another couple of hours to redo the notes for this. But that, that is a painful loss though, isn't it? And so I think in terms of how do we apply this to our realize, we've got to realize that loss aversion is real. We've got to realize that losses are absolutely painful uh, and often in a way that 
doesn't really make sense statistically. So as we said, if you were offered, uh, if you were offered a bet of you know to lose a hundred or to win a hundred and one, if it was a 50-50, you should take that bet. Statistically, you should take the bet, but psychologically, it's harder for us to take that bet. So you've got to be cognizant of the, of the fact that you are very loss averse. And you've got to try to take that into consideration, try and combat your own loss aversion and try to think of the statistics rather than just the psychological effects. I think this is what makes for good Texas hold and poker players. A lot of people, if the expected value or the best bet for the best perfect expected value, say, is $10, a lot of people might not take that bet because of their loss aversion. They're afraid of losing, whereas a poker player who can who can play over the very long term and be a lot more neutral in their emotion will be closer to one-to-one and in doing so, they're, they're going to exploit other people's irrationality in, in their bets. The endowment effect. Something in sort of ec- basic economics, if you've ever done any high school or university economics, uh, there's a thing called indifference curves. So indifference curves, if you've got sort of two choices, you know, choice A and choice B, there's a, a curve in between those to which you should be indifferent. So an example here is like salary in terms of dollars on one axis and on the other axis, days of holidays. So you might think that you know there, there's at your indifference curve, you might be indifferent between a $10,000 salary bump or 12 days of extra holidays per year. So that's like a curve where anywhere along that curve, uh, you should be statistically indifferent. But where the endowment effect comes into play is it is a thing called like the, the status quo bias or sort of what you're already accustomed to. So if you had built into your contract that you had an extra 12 days a year of holidays, uh, statistically, you should be indifferent between a 12-day year holiday or a $10,000 salary increase. But what the researchers found was that the person who already has a 12 days holidays is much less likely to give that up for the extra salary because they've become accustomed to it. They feel like it's theirs. They feel like they own it. They've really made plans around these 12 days of holidays. They're not likely to give it up. And that's, a, that's, a, and that's the endowment effect. Once we feel like it's ours, once we feel like we own something, we rate it as much more highly than we probably should. So the, dis- the disadvantages of a change loom larger than its advantages. So it induces the bias, as you said, that favors the status quo. So this loss aversion in all cases gives preference to the status quo. Yeah, you feel like you're, it ties together nicely with, with loss aversion. Like if you've got 12 days of extra salary and your boss says, actually, uh, we're going to remove those but instead give you a $10,000 salary increase, obviously you're feeling the loss of those 12 days and it feels like a big loss and because it's something you already had become accustomed to it was already part of the status quo that loss hurts more than the gain of the $10,000 salary and it works the other way as well if you already had an extra 10k salary and they and they were and someone offered you and they said instead of the 10k salary we'll give you 12 extra days of holidays because you've become accustomed to it because that's a status quo because you're used to that you're feeling that that's a big loss you think hang on how can i give up ten thousand dollars just for 12 days of holidays so really for both people on both sides of that the endowment effect means people want to keep what they've already got Mm. let's say your favorite band is about to play in in your town it's your favorite band you buy the ticket at the regular price for 200 bucks, and that decision was pretty difficult. It's a lot of money, but you thought, all right, it's my favorite band. They're only here once. Uh, all right, I'll buy it. Let's go and see them out. But as we get closer to the date, let's say an avid fan comes up to you and says, all, all the tickets are sold out. I'll offer you 500 bucks for the ticket. 
would you sell? Most people actually wouldn't sell. So the 200 bucks was hard to buy and the 500 bucks is hard to sell because the endowment effect, the decision they made to buy the ticket, they want to hang on to what they've got and that $200 decision, that 200 bucks there is worth more than the $500 in terms of the sale. And Khan has actually measured this. Most people lower selling price to see their favorite band is actually at about $3,000. Yeah, and that's pretty ridiculous here because you wouldn't buy the ticket for $3,000, but if you've already got the ticket, you wouldn't sell it for less than $3,000. So, it's, it's pretty ridiculous in terms of you know what we've already got, what we already think is ours, that endowment effect. If you've, if you've already got the money in your hand, you're less likely to give the money over for the ticket. If you've already got the ticket in your hand, you're less likely to accept money to give away the ticket. Sunk cost fallacy. Let's think it back to the Sydney light rail project. Now, originally it was budgeted to cost $1.6 billion. Let's just say for the sake of this example that the cost benefit analysis said the project's not worth then say $2 billion. And then a few years into the project, they've spent the $1.6 billion that it was originally to budget, budgeted for but then their new forecast is saying the project is going to cost $3 billion more. If you were a, an irrational, irrational agent, you'd think what we've already invested in the project has got nothing to do with the new cost-benefit analysis we've done. The project's worth $1.8 billion. We're not going to pay $3 billion more for this project. We need to can it and lose that $1.6 billion. Yeah, that's very hard to do though because then, man, that's $1.6 billion you've already spent. You're never going to get it back. Uh, but that's, again, the, the sunk cost fallacy where that if, if you've already spent something, whether it's money, whether it's a time investment, if you've invested something, you need to view that as a sunk cost, sunk cost in the sense that it's gone, you can't get it back. But unfortunately, those sunk costs play play heavily within our minds. We think we've already spent uh, this much money on it or we've already spent this much time trying to get this project up and running. It's hard to give it up at that point. We should always just forget about the sunk cost, what's been invested in, and it should have nothing to do with the decision going forward. This comes up a lot in everybody's lives almost every day, I'd say. Let's say if you buy a ticket for a movie, you go out for dinner beforehand and you had a, a nice meal with everyone there and then you spend another 30 bucks on the movie. You get in there, half an hour in, you realize the movie's a piece of shit and you're not going to enjoy the rest. I mean, if you were a rational agent, the, the, the $30 you've already spent will have nothing to do with you sitting in the movie. But because you already spent money on the night and to get you to this point, then you're probably going to go there and watch the rest of the movie just because the, the sunk cost bias. Yeah, there's actually now that we're talking about it, it's not in the notes, but I remember there was a an episode of uh, the Kimbo podcast, Seth Godin's podcast, where it was all about sunk cost fallacy, and he related it to the fact of like the degree that you've got. So, say you're you're working in a career and you've invested you know ten years into building your, up your skills in in this career. You've, you've obviously invested you know four years of in and you know tens of thousands of dollars of your college degree. And this is all sunk costs. If you're not enjoying the career that you're in, you shouldn't say, oh, I've already spent four years of college, tens of thousands of dollars for this degree and 10 years in the career building up. You know, you should ignore those sunk costs and instead make a decision based on right now rather than based on all these things that happened in the past. And I think this can be extended to unhappy marriages, unpromising research projects or anything like that. 
Justifying early mistakes shouldn't be of concern. A rational decision maker is interested only in the future consequences of what's coming rather than the consequences of previous investments. The experiencing self versus the remembering self. A study was done where participants had to submerge their hand in a bucket of icy cold water for 60 seconds. Obviously, it was freezing cold. It was pretty painful uh, and it lasted for 60 seconds. Uh, And the second group had a very similar thing. They submerged their hand in an ice bucket of water for 60 seconds. And then without them realizing, there was a little valve there where the... Uh, where they released a little bit of warmer water, so the degrees of the bucket increased slightly, and for the remaining 30 seconds, it was a much more comfortable temperature. So case A, 60 seconds freezing cold. Case B was 60 seconds freezing cold plus 30 seconds of just cold, not not totally freezing, but still painful. And what they did was they asked people afterwards, which of these would you prefer to do? And most people chose the second one, where it was actually 90 seconds in cold water. If you look at the amount of pain, the second one actually had more because they both had 60 seconds of the peak freezing plus the second one had that extra 30 seconds that was still freezing cold but not as cold. So the remembering self actually thought that the second one was more manageable and decided that they would rather do that one again. So what they found that there was two different selves. Obviously, the experiencing self in the moment knew the amount of pain but the remembering self remembered the two types of pain very differently. So the experiencing self thinks, does it hurt right now? And the experiencing self who went through that experiment for the 90 seconds would have realized that the pain of 90 seconds was more than the the experiment with just 60 seconds. But the remembering self is very irrational and looks back retrospectively with the question, how was it on the whole? Uh, And mate, interesting that you say on the whole because there was another study was of colonoscopies. Uh, and of their effect on the whole. (laughs) And and in a similar sort of setup, uh, one colonoscopy finished with a a sharp amount of pain towards the end, but it was a much shorter duration. And then the second study, it was a much longer colonoscopy. It was twice as long, but the way they did it, the pain slowly diminished and like a nice smooth curve down towards a nice soft uh, release. (laughs) And, and, mate, in terms of the pain on the whole... uh, the, even though the the first experience, it finished with a quite a painful one, but in, in terms of overall pain was less. But people said they would rather have the second one, which involved more pain, but it was a nice smooth transition towards the end. <laughs> mate, it's these Israeli scientists, mate. They, they always have crazy studies. They get up to some weird shit in Israel. <laughs> so where we, what we fall prone to is what he, he calls the peak end rule. And this is where we don't retrospectively look at the experience as a whole, what we do is we take the average of the very peak of the experience and the very end of the experience. And in both of these these studies, it had the same peak, but toward the end, it was simmering towards zero. So the average is low, whereas for the other experience where it was much shorter in terms of duration, you look at the peak and at the very end was much, much higher. So the average of those two you know, we the remembering self sees that as much more painful. Yeah, in addition to the peak end rule, is that duration neglect? Our remembering self forgets completely about the duration and it just remembers, as you say, the peak and the end. And uh, Chip and Dan Heath in their book, The Power of Moments, talked about this peak end rule as well. You know, they talked about the time that you go to Disneyland with your family and there's a, a whole bunch of different sort of ratings out of 10 of your time throughout the day. Maybe when you, you first walk in, it's super exciting. It's, you know, it's a, it's a 7 out of 10 when you think about what's coming up for the day. 
And then when you're waiting in line for the first ride and you're two and a half hours in the sun, you're probably at a one out of 10. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you go and you get a hot dog for lunch and your kid drops the hot dog and starts crying, it's a three out of 10. Uh, but then at the, the top of the roller coaster, you're at a nine out of 10. And on your way out of the park, you, you know, you see uh, Mickey Mouse gives your son a hug and that's an eight out of 10. So when you're evaluating that whole day, all we're really doing is taking the peak, which was like the 9 out of 10 at the top of the roller coaster. You take the end as you're walking out, an 8 out of 10. That's like a solid 8.5 day. That's a solid 8.5 out of 10 day. What we've done is we've completely neglected the duration of the whole day. We've also forgot about those stinkers, the time when we were in the sun for two and a half hours waiting for the roller coaster. Yeah, so with this information, we can start engineering and designing moments so we get the highest utility for the remembering self. So let's say if you're going on a holiday through Europe, understanding the peak end rule, we want a high peak somewhere in the holiday and then we need to cap it off with something very good at the very end. So you might see the Eiffel Tower at the very end and go paragliding or something in the middle in Morocco and what we're going to remember is the average of those two. But it goes the other way. Let's say if you go on a date and then you know, you've know you read this book and in the middle you buy the most expensive cocktail on the list. So you're better off doing that than buying a lot of inexpensive little pots of beer. <laughs> go to the top of the range cocktail and put all the money on that. The, the very end of the date, we again, we want another very good end of the date. You could do the risk. If you're going for the kiss <laughs> and get rejected, then it's... Uh, you know, you've you've cooked the peak end rule, so be very careful. Then you might just be a real gentleman or a lovely lady just to just to close the night off. Wow, that's a that's definitely an interesting one. As you say, the the duration neglect. You forget about the the hours of conversation, and all you think about is the the fancy cocktail and how did it finish. And so you can definitely uh, engineer situations to to work in your favour. So that is thinking fast and slow. It's a it's an absolute weapon of a book from an absolute weapon of a scientific researcher, Nobel Prize laureate, and uh, really the father of behavioral economics. So what we've covered in this episode is how we are prone to overconfidence through us and the what you see is all there is fallacy. We have this inability to see what's not there and we can fall victim to the narrative fallacy, hindsight slash outcome bias and... And our intuitions can really cook us sometimes. We're better off leaning towards formulas instead. And when we're planning for projects, we fall for the planning fallacy. Again, we can't see the unknown unknowns. We have the tendency to be loss averse. We can't discriminate sunk costs. And we have two selves, the experiencing self and the remembering self. <laughs>